one and done shot is back. Hours ago, Johnson & Johnson back in arms. This vaccine's known and potential benefits outweigh its known and potential risks. As the vaccine point man, the state's emergency management director begins his last week as Florida's master of disaster. Learning from what happened in Parkland, tomorrow is just not guaranteed. Learn that from the pandemic. Broward schools bombshell. You know, I have a myriad of emotions going on right now. The superintendent arrested. It is a political castration of a man, his good name, and the future of those like him. Can't just jump to conclusions without knowing all the information. The politics of school safety. I thought it was a productive meeting. South Florida represents in the Oval Office the first-hand account from the congressman. Anti-violence or anti-free speech? The anti-riot bill is now law. I think this bill uh, that I'll sign into law shows the state of Florida takes public safety very seriously. And it's now a target of a lawsuit. The big news of the week and the big newsmakers all live this week in South Florida. Good morning, I'm Glenna Milberg. Michael is off today. What a week of news and we begin a packed hour with breaking news. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine is back in use as of 7 o'clock this morning. South Florida's FEMA run sites resumed administering the one and done vaccine. Since Friday, the CDC lifted its suspension, finding its benefits outweigh any risk of blood clotting. Vaccination supply and logistics are part of an unprecedented new normal for Florida emergency management. From the lines for vaccines to the eye of the storms, life or death decision making is just another day at the office for the director. Jared Moskowitz has been in that hot seat for two years. It's about to start his final week on the job as the state's master of disaster. Jared, I stole that from you. I love that and welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Glenn. It's good to be with you. Thank you. You know, I, I really want to ask you about the 2020 hindsights that you will impart to the guy who comes next in that department. But I really want to talk about the J&J &J supply so far. So the CDC lifted suspension a couple of days ago this morning. Uh, it's resuming in Florida. T take us through what that means for Florida now, because the last couple of weeks has been sort of a watershed and change. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So we, you know, we just started putting it back out there. We're using uh, Johnson Johnson almost exclusively on all our mobile buses. Uh, the mobile buses are going into disadvantaged minority neighborhoods, folks, uh, you know, that we're seeing vaccine hesitancy with. Um, we've had already done about 50,000 people with Johnson Johnson with those mobile buses. So we're thankful to, to get that back. We'll have to see if by Johnson Johnson coming off the market, if, if there'll be any hesitancy uh, with that, but but the one-shot vaccine uh, is by far, from a logistics standpoint, um, tremendously helpful uh, to folks uh, like myself who are trying to get people the vaccine who are who are hesitant to get it. Um, you know, ultimately, it was a great decision by the Biden administration to bring it back. We wish it hadn't happened uh, at all because we were making great progress uh, with it. So we'll we'll have to just see if uh, if there's any hangover from, from the vaccine coming off the market for a couple of weeks. And you know, we, we've still heard from people who, who are hesitant and maybe don't trust that the CDC is right. What do you tell them? Yeah, I mean, listen, th these vaccines are, are safe. Uh, they're effective, uh, all of them on the market. Uh, and if you don't like one, there's others to get. And so, you know, what we're hoping is that this doesn't interfere with people wanting to get the vaccine. We were worried about that when they pulled it off the market because the only data that was publicly available was 
you know, six plus cases and one on unfortunate death. Well, 7 million people had been given the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, and so, you know, while we were trying to, you know, get over vaccine hesitancy in a lot of different communities, you know, we were worried that this was this was going to have a tremendous impact. And we, we have seen that, by the way, at a number of our sites. We've seen our sites decline dramatically uh, since Johnson Johnson was pulled off the market. So it, it is having some sort of effect uh, in general. But we'll have to see if, as soon as we put it back at our mobile buses and get into communities, if people don't, uh, don't want to take it. Is so frame for us, if you would, the, the status, because to your point, we've, uh, there are some places that we've seen in our reporting and our crews are out there. They see sites that have vaccine that they can't give away. And yet, um, you know, Florida's numbers are really good nationally for people who have had their full vaccination plate. What is the status of Florida vaccinations now? Well, I mean, we've done 75% of all seniors, over three and a half million uh, folks have been double vaccinated uh, that are that are senior citizens here in the state. We started with seniors. We were one of the first in the nation to do so, uh, even against, at that time, CDC guidance, but that turned out to be the right decision. The CDC and the FDA soon uh, followed suit. Uh, we've done eight and a half million doses uh, in general uh, right now in the, in the state of Florida. So we're we're still moving, uh, but obviously, you know, Dr. Fauci has talked about herd immunity around that 70, 80 percent uh, number. I don't know that uh, we're on the trajectory to get there. Things have slowed down dramatically. There's hesitancy uh, in the minority community. We see hesitancy among uh, Republican white males. And so between historical vaccine hesitancy and health equity issues that have long existed in minority communities for a period of time and the politics of the vaccine that started uh, late last year, uh, a lot of states are facing a lot of headwinds and trying to get people to take the vaccine. Yeah, let's talk about those politics a little bit. I mean, you, you are a Democrat tapped by a very conservative governor a couple of years ago to be his director of emergency management. Governor DeSantis had glowing words for you. Uh, what an excellent job you've done in uh, charting an unprecedented job and, and you will have to sort of impart some things to your uh, successor. But along the way, I mean, I think there are real lessons to be learned in working in a bipartisan manner between the, you and the, and the governor. Of course, he's your, your boss. But you really had some competing narratives over the last year, especially when it became uh, came down to mask, uh, mask wearing and the governor really uh, put the clamp down on any kind of mandates for anything, even locally, uh, for people to wear masks or do any sort of uh, legal work in trying to prevent the spread. I, I wonder if you could sort of tell us how how that happens in our divided times. Te teach a lesson for those to come, how you've managed to sort of bridge that divide. Well, I mean, listen, uh, when you went to a high school and live in a city that 17 people went to school one day and did not come home, you realize that all the bickering and fighting and partisan nonsense that goes on on Twitter, the 24-hour media coverage that is meant to divide people for uh, corporate profit, you, you realize that's all meaningless when your kid doesn't come home and all you did was send them to school. And so, look, I was coming off of what happened in Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Uh, the governor came to me seven or eight uh, months later. Uh, wanted to give me uh, the Division of Emergency Management. I talked to all my Democratic colleagues, moderate, progressive, you name them, and they all said, take take the offer. And so, um, you know, I didn't know that we were gonna get a pandemic, of course, uh, but the division is supposed to help people in their time of need. A hurricane uh, doesn't hit a Democrat or Republican household, it hits a whole neighborhood. Um, you know, I'm concerned, obviously, that there's a, there'll be um, 
some things have gone on, the politicization of disaster management that's gone on during the pandemic. I'm hopeful that it doesn't stay around uh, for the next disaster, whether it be a hurricane or something else, uh, but, but it remains to be seen. Everything has become more political. You know, as far as working you know, with the governor, look, the governor and I had lots of disagreements. I think the most public one was on a mask mandates, but I'll tell you the governor uh, never, uh, uh, never stopped me from being myself. Uh, he, he understood that when he gave me the job, I mean, I said to him when we sat down almost two and a half years ago, I said, look, uh, I'm not going to change who I am. And he said, I don't expect you to. And I said, okay. Um, and so, you know, that's how I've operated in the last almost two and a half years. And the governor's given me the freedom uh, to do that. And every time I thought we were doing something uh, wrong or we, we needed to, to, to change it a little bit, he always gave me the opportunity uh, to make my case. And sometimes I won and sometimes I didn't. Uh, but uh, what I do know is uh, by the governor and I working together, I think Florida had a very balanced response uh, to COVID-19. I think it proves that in comparison uh, to our other states. Joe Biden has a great quote. It says, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And when you look at California, New York, and Texas, I think Florida is in, in really good shape. That doesn't mean we were perfect. Uh, we didn't, you know, bat a thousand. This was a one in 100 year pandemic. No one had ever done this before since the Spanish flu. And so, um, you know, there's, there's lessons learned, uh, but, uh, well, give me a, you know, give me a lesson. What's the, what's the one thing that you look back and you learned a big lesson and, and maybe in hindsight would have done differently? Well, I think one of the big lessons, quite frankly, for government in general, not necessarily for myself is you better invest in government. This idea that we're going to strip government down to its core. We're not going to pay people a, a living wage. Uh, and you know, we're not going to give them the resources and the tools they need when it comes to budget time. I, you know, people want to know, well, why didn't this work? And why didn't that work? Why did Connect fail? Or why, why were there problems in health? Well, at the end of the day, when you don't invest in them for 10 years, you get what you pay for. And so what I'm hoping is that we're going to see investment in federal agencies and state agencies that have to respond to people in their time of need, including the Division of Emergency Management. The state just gave the division $100 million to build a new building. Um, and that's a fantastic first start. And so that's one of, I think, the lessons here is is that you know we can we can try to say that we want government to be as small uh, as we need, but government's got to be as small as we need, but as big as it can be when it comes to uh, people in their time of need. Because when the pandemic hit, the only one to turn to at that time was government and government's response. Great parting words. Appreciate your time. Great to have you with us. Best of luck not only in your last week, Jared, but in whatever is to come for you. And uh, we'll be watching. Thanks, Glenn. I appreciate the opportunity. I'll be with my family. That's where I'm going to be for the time being. That's a good place to be. Thanks so much. Thanks. Coming up next, uh, a superintendent's arrest, blindsiding even the school board members who oversee him. Broward school board member Debbie Hickson, whose late husband we know as the hero coach at Douglas High. She's live with us after the break. The news landed like a bombshell. Broward School Superintendent Robert Runcie arrested. One perjury charge alleges he lied to a Florida grand jury in testimony a few weeks ago. School District Attorney Barbara Myrick also arrested on a charge she divulged secret grand jury proceedings to people in Broward and in Miami-Dade. That grand jury was impaneled by Governor Ron DeSantis to investigate school safety failures a year after the murders at Stoneman Douglas High School. 
Now two of the nine school board members are family members of those victims, and Deborah Hickson is one. Her husband, Coach Chris, died a hero saving students that day. Debbie Hickson, great to have you this morning. We are grateful for your time. Well, thank you for inviting me. You know, when we spoke on Wednesday, you were surprised as anyone uh, hearing the news of the arrest now that you've had a couple of days to digest it and maybe learn more. What is your understanding of the charges? To be honest, I honestly don't know more than what we knew on Wednesday. Uh, we really haven't received information as to what exactly the charge of perjury is based on. So um, I'd love to tell you I have more information, but I, I really don't. I'm waiting to just along with everyone else to find out what the exact details around this are. I, you know, I will say that Robert Bunsey's attorneys are saying the same thing. Uh, they, the public, we have not gotten any more than I suppose you or they have. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's problematic for reporting on this at the moment. But, you know, as a, mm -hmm. as a family member, you have been, like uh, most of the other family members from Parkland, very critical of the superintendent over the past couple of years, especially where it comes to security policy and action and inaction. And as a board member, you're taking a much more balanced approach to this. Take us through that sort of balance that you're going through as, as you prepare to make decisions about the superintendent's future this week? Well, you know, I, I'm now an elected official. It isn't about my own personal feelings. It's about what's right. Everyone is due their due process. And, and it, until it plays out, it's really hard to know what the end result is going to be. I would say that, you know, we're, we're in one step one of, of a long process here. And when we look at what happens to teachers who are in the situation or other employees, um, often we find alternate assignments for them until the whole system plays out and we find out whether they're guilty or not. Whether that's going to be what we pick or not, I, you know, I don't know. We're not allowed to talk about it until Tuesday. But I, I am weighing all of the options and trying to make sure that what I what I decide to do is what's right for our district, for our students, for our staff, and for our community. So it isn't about what I personally believe. Um, I'm not in that position. You know, I'm in a different position now. It has to be what the right thing is to do. So it weighs very heavy on my mind um, right now. Of course, and, and I and we appreciate that sort of raw honesty of what you're going through. It's a really difficult position. You know, Governor Ron DeSantis had promised uh, from day one, and even before he was inaugurated, he was um, promising accountability to the community, to the families, and, you know, right off the bat in his tenure, he suspended then Broward Sheriff Brow, um, Scott Israel. Uh, to this day, Scott Israel is adamantly denying he is responsible. Um, the responsibility of Superintendent Robert Runsey, he handed to a grand jury. And, and so we have a community now who had a rally, uh, a lot of community leaders had a rally for the superintendent. We have a community, a portion of the community, looking like this is a politically motivated arrest. I, I wonder if you're open to looking at that issue and considering that that may have something to do with this case. Well, you know, when you think about what the grand jury is, the grand jury was selected across three different counties. There were people from Broward, Palm Beach, and Dade County. They're all different race, um, you know, um, backgrounds. 
And they were arbitrarily selected just like any other jury is selected. So I know that there's a lot of talk around the political part of it, but when you look at who, who made up this grand jury and how they were selected, I'd like to believe that the process is going through the proper steps. And so, you know, like I said, he was indicted or charged, but now he'll have his day in court to decide whether he's truly guilty of the charges that they have brought around him. But, you know, that's, I want to be very clear, when people are talking about accountability, the grand jury wasn't about what happened on February 14th. It may be about security that's happened afterwards, but I want people to get confused about we're seeking accountability for something that happened on February 14th and what is happening with this grand jury. So that's how I look at it. You can't mix the two. One may have come because of the other one, but the issues they're looking at weren't what happened on February 14th. They are what has happened afterwards and then things with the bond. So, you know, we have to we have to stick with facts. And sometimes it's really hard when it is emotional. But that's really where I find myself at this point. The facts are, you know, centered in what's happening now, not not what happened on the 14th of February in 2018. Actually, that's what our entire justice system is based upon, moving away the emotion and looking at the facts. The grand jury initially, to your point, was seated to determine, you know, school security and the money, some of the bond money that was earmarked or is earmarked for upgrades in the security and safety oh, yeah, issues. Um, it was broadened out a bit to look at other things. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Public Safety Commission had uh, come up with some mandates for school security. Take us through, as a board member, district-wide, are those upgrades being made to your satisfaction? Is there an issue district-wide? So they're being made. Most schools now have the single point of entry. There are other things that I feel um, are, are dragging. We do have a safety or security officer, whether it's an SRO or a guardian in each of the schools. I would like to see the buzzers that um, work with the single point of entry moved quicker. There are some other issues that I've reached out in terms of just making sure not just security staff, but the staff in the schools know exactly what to do when a code red is called or code black or whatever the you know the codes may be it isn't just about an active shooter so i feel some of those things are not done with the urgency that they should be but i do believe that the district is moving forward and that they have have done a lot around security they had a referendum that allowed them to change the structure and add more people. And all of that is, um, you know, moving forward. So I believe they're moving forward. I would like to see it done with a greater sense of urgency. Understood. Deborah Hickson, great to have you with us. I am grateful for your time and we'll be watching what you and your colleagues do on Tuesday. All right. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thanks. You too. And up next, a seat at the table. Miami-Dade Congressman Carlos Jimenez got one in the Oval Office this week. What he told the president and what's to come, he's here with us live next. In these contentious times, a few things do have support across the political divide, and one of them is 
Infrastructure, basically building things that allow communities to function. Well, this week, President Biden summoned a bipartisan group of lawmakers to the Oval Office looking to bridge build, literally and figuratively. And one of Miami-Dade's Republican members of Congress, Carlos Jimenez, was on that invite list, and that is where we start with the congressman. Good morning. Good morning, Glenna. How are you doing? Great, thank you. Good to have you aboard again. So, Congressman, the gathering on Monday, the President of the United States decided to bring in lawmakers who used to be local administrators, mayors and governors, and you were, let's say, you were city manager, county commissioner, uh, county mayor of the largest county in Florida, so you fit that bill really well, and um, the President was looking for support for his two-point, I'm just going to say three, but I know that's fluctuating, two-point three trillion dollar infrastructures and jobs plan. Does he have your support on that? He's got my support on, on infrastructure. He does not have support on the, the current bill as it's uh, proposed. There's too many things in there that are not, not infrastructure. And so I think uh, uh, all the Republicans uh, that were on the meeting, uh, there were 10 people there, five senators, five House members, uh, six Democrats, and four, four Republicans. The four Republicans are pretty much uh, in line. We were all in line with, hey, we back you on infrastructure. We do need infrastructure, but infrastructure, an infrastructure bill should be about infrastructure and should be roads and bridges and then things that, you know, that help us be competitive in the world, uh, you know, investments in R&D, um, you know, transportation, all those things. Yeah, we will be there. But when you start talking about infrastructure and then you say that, uh, that the home health care for seniors uh, and to be unionized as part of infrastructure, I think that's where you're going to lose us. And so we'd, like, we'd rather see a, a smaller number that's actually just focused on sure. And then, then we had a, a difference of opinion on how to pay for it. Uh, the president wants to increase the well, corporate well, tax okay. rate. Let me, just inter let me interrupt you just for a moment because sure. I, I want to sort of finish one thing before we go to the financing of it. What What is in that bill that that you like and that you don't? We haven't really seen a breakdown of a, a plan. We've seen a, a bigger breakdown of the American Families Plan that the president is planning to bring to Congress this week. But the infrastructure jobs plan, what is it that you are, well, support and opposed to specifically? Well, listen, there, there's more money in the that the proposal from the president and the Democrats for uh, electric uh, charging stations that there are for fixing our roads and bridges. And that, you know, it does, that just doesn't make sense. Well, let, and, me, let me ask you, might it make sense if you have the perspective, and, and I'm just kind of challenging the narrative here. Sure. To me, um, the charging stations sort of telegraph an interest in electric cars and more electric vehicles phasing out uh, what we have in um, in deference to a newer, more advanced technology, greener economy. So that's kind of a seismic change that we haven't seen, which many times is so tough to stomach for people whose livelihoods depend on what we have right now. Uh, is, is that something that's going to be problematic? Yeah, it's problematic. I'll tell you why. Because there's thousands of electric charging stations right now that are being financed by the private sector. Tesla has thousands. Ford has thousands. GM is going that way. Every single ma major, you know, uh, motor vehicle producer is going to be producing electric vehicles. And right now, Ford and Tesla have tens of thousands of charging stations. Why are we going to have to invest in charging stations 
when in fact the manufacturers are going to do that themselves. And the problem, the problem that I have is, you know, electric vehicles are still super expensive. Therefore, you know, mostly the folks that are in the upper echelon, the rich uh, or upper middle class, the poor and the working folks, they don't have the money to buy electric vehicles. And so, and, and those electric vehicles are going to be riding on those roads and those bridges. And so you have to, you have to fix those roads and those bridges so those electric vehicles and other vehicles can actually travel. So to actually invest more in electric, electric charging stations and not in the roads and the bridges that they're actually going to be traveling on kind of seems to me counterproductive. And so, uh, again, and one of the, the other example I gave you is there's home health care for seniors. What has that got to do with infrastructure and unionizing them? What has that got to do with infrastructure? And did so you ask? Did you ask the president that? Well, look, what I what I told the president that we need to do is we're we're with you with uh, with infrastructure. One of the first things you have to do is do uh, reform the regulations that the federal government has. If I were and I gave him an example, look, if I had if we had decided on my first day as mayor that we were going to do five miles of metro metro rail we're going to expand metro rail by my last day which was nine and a half years later we wouldn't have cut the ribbon because of all the different regulations that the federal government you know puts in your way so if we really want really good infrastructure a you got to have the money b you also got to get rid of some of these regulations that don't allow you to spend the money because of all these hoops that you have to you know run over me, and also two, all these regulations Give me, give me one or two of those regulations. Let, let's telegraph this to the president right now. What, what's the first that should be going? Well, one of the things that you have is, is you have these environmental reviews that you have to take years and years and years. I'd, I'd rather have block grants given to municipalities and the states, and the, and the states and the municipalities within a broad range can start doing these projects uh, in a much more efficient way. There's things called new starts and, and small starts. Small start programs, because they have a, a limited number, uh, in other words, the, the amount is smaller, they don't have to jump through quite all those hoops. Uh, a new starts, they do because it's a big amount of money. What difference does it make if it's a small amount of money or a big amount of money? Why do you have to jump through all these hoops that take years and years and years and, frankly, waste millions of dollars well, when all these regulations and all these studies, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we the really environmental regulations, I would guess the answer for your opposition would be, well, we need to protect the environment and the historical environmental record in the United States has resulted in some, you know, global warming, sea level rise, which your constituents are are on the front lines of. Uh, so I, I presume that, that there needs to be a happy medium of some kind of regulations to make sure that all of this is done in a self, safe and healthy way. No, these, these, this is an environmental environmental uh, studies that you have to do is, is this gonna go through the right place and all, this is all kinds of different kinds of studies. They call it environmental, environmental review, NEPA, uh, a NEPA study, but it's, it's got more and more than, than that. And then why is it if it's a small, if it's a small amount of money and you're only gonna spend this amount, you have to do this kind of process. When it's a large amount, you gotta do this process. I'm telling you, uh, uh, Glenna, if you talk to mayors and to, and to governors, they'll tell you the same thing. The, the, the regulations that the federal government imposes on you makes it almost to the point where as mayor, uh, uh, when I was mayor of Miami, I would ask, hey, uh, can't we just do this by ourselves? 
because if we do this by ourselves, we don't have this myriad of regulations that actually increases the cost of the project tremendously. And so that's the first thing that we have to do uh, in order to move uh, in the, the uh, infrastructure project. And then focus on infrastructure and focus on those things that will make us more competitive against, you know, basically our, our competitors around the world, number one being China. Uh, and so we, you know, we do things in, in the cleanest way possible. We're probably, you know, one of the, one of the cleanest nations as, as far as when we're constructing or we're developing technology. We, we have all these regulations that make us green. That's great. I don't have a problem with that. But uh, the, uh, I'm afraid that uh, this infrastructure project, this infrastructure bill will actually make, may make us less competitive in, in, uh, in the world. Well, let's, uh, let me, let me um, I, we have a break to hit, but uh, I want to pick up there when we come back because we're going to go into that a little bit more and the financing of it. So stay tuned. We'll be back in two. We are talking with Congressman Carlos Jimenez, Republican of Miami-Dade, about his meeting with the president in the Oval Office Monday about infrastructure. I remember infrastructure week seemed like such a long time ago. So, Congressman, you walked into the Oval Office on Monday as someone invited as a consensus builder, as someone who has run big local governments for your expect uh, expertise. And you also walked in there as a freshman congressman from South Florida who voted not to certify the presidential election. How, which of those framed your mindset and discussion when you were sitting there with the president? I did not vote. I did not not vote to certify the election. The, the two states that I voted not to certify would not have turned the outcome of the election. So I, you know, I really don't, don't okay, like fair, that. Fair point, fair point. Okay, so I, I always said that he was the president of the United States. There was two states that I, that I voted uh, against because I felt that they had violated the Constitution. But those states would not have overturned the election. Okay, Unlike that that is a fair point. But you went in there. You went in yeah. there having cast votes opposed to some of the states who did their elections certain ways. So, yes. uh, so when you when you I guess the question is, do you go in there as an invited consensus builder or as a party opposition? Look, if you look at my voting record right now in Congress, I'm probably in the top 20 bipartisan members of Congress. Maybe that's why uh, you were invited. Uh, probably was okay, and also because I was the mayor of uh, of a large, of a large, I mean, basically a big city mayor, and so they needed somebody like that, and and somebody who's had had experience, and and I think the vice president also remembered me from my time. Uh, working with the Obama administration, where I worked across the aisle with the Obama administration. So, um, you know, it was an honor to be invited by, by the president. It was a frank discussion. It was very cordial, uh, you know, and the, the, the president uh, also, I think it could have been that he found out I was a firefighter. The president has a very, very high regard for firefighters that saved his uh, son's life. And actually, he says that uh, they also saved his life. And so he, um, you know, after the, the entire the entire meet, you know, official meeting, you know, took place. I, I spent about five minutes with the president talking about firefighters and all, and I was very appreciative of his comments, and and it was all heartfelt. And so, look, uh, we can be, we can disagree and not be disagreeable, and that's what's happening in this country. Everybody's fighting each other. They can't, and they can't, you know, sit down and just have a cordial conversation afterwards. I don't agree with what the president is doing on this on this infrastructure. So, bill. so tell me what you told him yes, as far as the the, the financing of this. 
um, is one of the real contentious issues um, at, historically and going forward and at the moment. So we haven't really seen the GOP infrastructure plan in detail. What about the financing and details have you told the president who, who said he wants to compromise? What, do you, what are you telling him is that compromise? Look, um, the, uh, none of the Republicans want to see a, a rise in the corporate uh, tax. Uh, why? We feel that's going to put America at a, a competitive disadvantage. We're going to, uh, his proposal will, will have the corporate tax rate higher than communist China. And in, and in communist China, actually, if you have a, a company that's actually competing in the world stage, the corporate tax rate is only 15%. And so at this point, we're trying to get out, we're, we're trying to recover from COVID. It appears that all, all the signs are heading in the right direction. You know, it's not the time to start, you know, uh, cutting down on investments in American companies and investments in America. And so, you know, that was the message that we have. We have to find different ways of, uh, of paying for this, uh, for this, for this bill. And what, and what are those ways? I mean, to your point, what, what, what is the, the GOP idea for paying for is what everyone is agreeing is essential infrastructure advancements? Well, we don't think that it needs to be paid off, you know, right e e immediately. The infrastructure are things that last, you know, 15, 20, 30 years. And so therefore it could be paid off over a certain period of time. But we don't think that, uh, that the way to pay for it is by starting to stunt uh, reinvestment in America and American companies and also uh, in American jobs. We want Americans to go back to work. Uh, we want to we wanna restart what was the greatest economy of my time that started before the pandemic. Uh, and th there were certain policies in place that allowed that to happen. Um, you know, and right now, all those policies are being you know, stripped down and taken away. And we're just going to head back into, you know, a, a period of very slow economic growth while our leading competitor, China, is just going, you know, all out. And so, you know, we, we can't do that to, to American businesses. And so, you know, we want to incentivize American business. We want to incentivize investment. We don't want to disincentivize it. And we just think that that's the wrong avenue to take is increasing the corporate tax rate. Well, we are looking forward to watching how bipartisan compromise happens, and uh, hopefully you'll be part of that. And we do appreciate your time, as always, and it's great to see you. Thanks, Congressman. All right. Great being here again, Glenn. I have a great day. Thanks. You too. And up next, Governor Ron DeSantis signed one of the most controversial laws of the legislative session, and it's already in the courts. The people challenging the anti-riot law are right here live after the break. This week, the governor signed one of his priority bills into law, the so-called Anti-Riot Act, also one of the most controversial. It alters Florida's crime and punishment statutes governing protests and gatherings. Monday, it became law. Wednesday, it became the target of a lawsuit. Shannon Ligon is the plaintiff of that federal lawsuit filed by attorney Aaron Carter Bates in Central Florida, both right there with us today. And it's so good to have you both. Appreciate your time and welcome. Uh, good morning. Thanks for having us. Good morning. So, Shannon, you are the plaintiff. Um, you have already uh, alleged that you have suffered from this bill. Explain what what you have suffered and what the basis of the lawsuit is. 
Well, um, as founder of Lawyers Matters Task Force, we are a volunteer organization and advocacy group where we're a group of lawyers and non-lawyers alike that go to many of these protests to be legal observers and make sure that um, protesters and people are safeguarded. We document, you know, any incidences and oftentimes if there are arrests or cases, we will um, appear as witnesses to the court and advocates to the court. So when this piece of legislation came out, I had to contact my friend and colleague, attorney Aaron Bates and say, our group cannot go out and volunteer or even attend these pe peaceful protests without risk of getting arrested. So, you know, this is just a very harmful bill, just not to uh, protesters, but even to advocates, nurses, teachers, anyone that wants to go out and, you know, peacefully protest, this, this affects us all. And, and that has really been from the very beginning, the inception of this bill, which the governor had sort of started to frame right after the protest last summer in Florida and nationwide, uh, right after George Floyd's death protests for equal justice in policing that that is no doubt where the inception of this bill is and and since then you have framed what the opposition is pretty succinctly but there there really isn't anything in this bill that would prevent peaceful free speech protests and and so i wonder if you would enumerate detail what what is it that you find in the bill that prevents free speech well, um, I can let my attorney answer as well, but course, free speech is just one of the many things. You know, we have equal protection, due process, and what is most important is there are laws already on the books to take care of things if there are riots, if there is vandalism or burglary. So what we have here is, I think, a very uh, specific interested law and our governor not even listening to the people of Florida. Like well, we are let, already. Let me, let me just um, stop you because I really, we have such a short time together. I really want to get deep down into the detail. There, there is, there may not be a need in people's mind for this. What some of the framers have said was this is a just in case bill. So we'll stipulate that everyone's on board there. But what is it that you find in this bill that prevents you or anyone else from gathering and protesting peacefully any issue? And, and, and I'll, if you don't mind, I'll answer that. Um, you know, I went to school in Tallahassee, um, went to law school in Tallahassee, worked in the Capitol. Um, I understand the attorneys up there are, are sharp and uh, are able to do a, a good job. And I don't understand how this bill made it out of the committee, much less uh, how it made it in the law. And in terms of the, the problems that Floridians need to be aware of, our governor was on Tucker Carlson bragging about the fact that Florida had no uh, destroyed buildings or death as a result of protests in the state of Florida. So okay, have, I, I, I appreciate that answer, but I'm going to re-ask the question. What is in the bill that you see that would prevent anyone from protesting peacefully? Oh, absolutely. So the bill uh, defines, uh, the bill sets out to stop riots or to stop individuals from inciting a riot. And the problem is that there's no definition in the bill of what that means. It's vague, it's overbroad. So when Shannon came to me about uh, the planned vigil yesterday, I said, absolutely not. Uh, just being out there in, in public 
voicing a dissenting opinion uh, subjects you to felony prosecution. Well, so let me that. read you. Let me read you that. That's not exactly factual, respectfully, because let me read you what the Senate analysts have come up with, and this is right out of the language of the bill, that what the definition you're talking about of a riot, three or more people, willful, the word willful, participation in violent, is there, public disturbance, uh, with a common interest to assist each other in violent conduct resulting in injury to people, damage to property, or imminent injury or damage. So damage and violence and injury and willfulness really are the definitions, which has really nothing to do with a peaceful protest, which we saw all over Florida, very peaceful protests that would fit right in under this bill. Well, I would respectfully disagree that I misstated or misquoted the law. You read it um, crystal clear right there. So, for example, if Shannon and I go out and uh, protest for higher teacher wages, theoretically under the bill we'd be okay. If you were to join us as a third and some random individual came along and committed an act of violence under the bill, and again, I respectfully disagree with your interpretation, but under the bill, we would all be swept up and going to jail for uh, for a felony because we didn't uh, because we were in the area when the violent act occurred. Not only that, but we'd be denied denied bail until first appearance. That's a violation of the Eighth Amendment. And if somebody drove through the crowd and killed Shannon, that person would be free from any civil liability for uh, for the violence because we were quote-unquote committing a riot. Well, so again, you have the governor attempting to give uh, sovereign immunity to civil people if they drive a car through a crowd. Again, this is why this is bad law. Well, the um, certainly the point that you make of being broad is there, and certainly the point that you make of having uh, people having discretion is there, but isn't that how the law works at the moment? The, the crimes that are in this bill where now the punishment has been made more severe. Those, those exist now and in, and in fact under a state of emergency, which a lot of Florida has been under for the past year, there's, there's nothing in this bill that police officers could not have done. And, 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 and I mean, that's not entirely true because um, first and foremost, this bill, this bill creates no uh, new category of criminal offense. In other words, we have a law on the books of Florida for every bit of conduct outlawed in this bill. The problem is this bill makes the penalties more severe, and our governor knew less restrictive bills were struck down by federal courts in Virginia, in South Dakota, in Arizona. So he passes this as a badge for a 2024 presidential run. Uh, Aaron, I just want to, but we have about a minute left, and I want to ask you, um, as this case goes forward, I'm not sure if there's a hearing scheduled yet, but uh, your, the Florida Bar says you are ineligible to practice right now because you are behind and delinquent on some continuing uh, education credits. H how do you plan to remedy that? Well, again, I would uh, you know, respectfully disagree with the statement you just made. I believe our office sent you over the, both the bar website showing that we were eligible at all times, and also I couldn't have filed this lawsuit if I was ineligible. Uh, any lawyer that's been practicing as long as I have has missed a deadline to do a, a web seminar. So we found out about it in February. It was corrected in early March. The Sentinel ran a piece 
without confirming with our office and they retracted it the next day. So, right, well, um, I, um, I, I hope that maybe the Florida Bar, as we speak this morning, has a banner that says ineligible, so maybe the bar needs to get a phone call or something to remedy that. But Aaron Bates, Shannon Ligon, I uh, really appreciate you sort of clarifying the lawsuit, and we certainly will be tracking it as it goes through the courts. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. I want to thank you for plugging in with us today. And if you're plugged in at the moment, I'm on, uh, online right now here on the computer. If you want to follow me, Twitter, uh, it's Glenna WPLG. And we can also connect on Instagram or Facebook, whatever your pleasure. Remember, we are online, local10.com 24-7. Great to be with you. Have a great Sunday.